chapter 35, verses 20 to 30. I think we'll actually be going to 33. Then let all the craftsmen among you come and make everything Adonai has ordered. The tabernacle with its tent, coverings, fasteners, planks, crossbars. The table with its poles and all of its utensils and the showbread, the menorah for the light with its utensils and lamps, the oil for the light, the incense altar with its poles, the anointing oil, fragrance incense, screen for the entranceway at the entrance to the tabernacle, the altar for burnt offerings and with its poles and all of its utensils, basins with its base, Ah, 20. Excuse me. Sometimes I get carried away. I apologize. Verse 20. Then the whole community of Israel withdrew from Moshe's presence, and they came, everyone whose heart was stirred with him, and everyone whose spirit made him willing and brought Adonai's offering for work on the tent of meetings, for service in it, and for the holy garments. Both men and women came, as many as had willing hearts. They brought nose rings, earrings, signet rings, belts, all kinds of gold jewelry, everyone bringing an offering of gold to Adonai, everyone who had blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, fine linen, tanned ramskins, or fine leather, brought them. Everyone contributing silver or bronze brought his offerings for Adonai, and everyone who had acacia wood suitable for any of the work brought it. All the women who were skilled at spinning got to work and brought what they had spun, the blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen. Likewise, women whose hearts were stirred with them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. The leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ritual vest and breastplate the spices and oils for the light, for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. Thus every man and woman of the people of Israel whose heart impelled them to contribute any kind of work Adonai had ordered through Moshe brought it to Adonai as a voluntary offering. Moshe said to the people of Israel, See, Adonai has assigned Bezael, the son of Uri, the son of Ur, the tribe of Yehuda. He has filled him with the spirit of our God, with wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Excuse me. Concerning every type, kind of artistry. He is a master of design in gold, silver, bronze, 
cutting precious stones to be set, wood carving, and every other craft. Thank you, Paula. Before we launch into the actual message, I wanted to take a couple minutes. And um, for you who are new to us, uh, take a moment or so to describe Shavuot, which in Hebrew means uh, Feast of Weeks, which comes from the book of uh, Leviticus chapter 23, where the major holidays are described. Uh, Shavuot is also called the Feast of First Fruits. Um, it's actually the second Feast of First Fruits because the first Feast of First Fruits is during Passover when the uh, barley, uh, the first fruits of barley are brought. And then on Shavuot, which is 50 days later, uh, the first fruits of everything else. So that's the other agricultural uh, function of Shavuot. Then uh, the rabbis determined, according to their calculations, that the Torah was given on Mount Sinai probably on the same day as Shavuot. So that's also part of the celebration. Um, and then finally, for us in a Messianic congregation, we also have the reminder of what happened in the book of Acts, the outpouring the first fruits of the Spirit of God. So those are some of the things that are incorporated in our celebration of Shavuot, and we will have more information next Shabbat, uh, particularly if you're new. So I wanted to pause and um, ask the Lord's blessing on the study for this Shabbat. Thank you, Lord God, for the wonderful things you have to say to us through familiar passages, and thank you, Lord, how you highlight the special emphases for us, Lord God, as we read and reread, humbly asking that you would speak to us, so we thank you for that. We pray, Lord God, that each one of us will come away with a basic message from you, Lord, that what it is that we need to, to do and apply in our own life. We thank you for that in the name of Yeshua. Amen. So we've been talking about uh, Shavuot, excuse me, about giving. And um, if you read these chapters in Exodus, you probably, uh, let's be honest, you're probably stifling a yawn because you're looking at all the descriptions of all the things that were supposed to be brought and unless you are an artisan or a craftsman or someone who is interested in construction, looking at all these details is probably something that flies over your head at Mach 15. Um, and I have read and taught from these chapters. Uh, folks who like to preach the Word of God love these chapters, especially the last couple of verse, the, the first couple of verses in chapter 36, where Moses is told by the craftspeople, tell the folks to stop bringing all this money. We have too much stuff. So people like, people like me usually like to zoom in and refer to that. Uh, but there's so much more. In fact, I'm not even going to mention that because there's so much here about 
how God extends a personal invitation to the people of Israel. And by the way, let me mount a soapbox here for a minute. Um, Israel, the nation of Israel, are the people's exhibit A for God's incredible love and mercy. How that despite everything that the nation has done, God hangs in there and continues with his covenant-keeping love. And this is what we see here. We see God extending an invitation. This is, of course, a repeat of what we saw last Shabbat when Rabbi David preached from Exodus 25, which in Exodus 25 was actually the words um, of God spoken. And here it is uh, the words of God, but they're spoken through Moses. And um, the emphasis that I wanted to draw your attention to is the fact that the people of Israel were expected to bring an offering. And there are two words in Hebrew that are physical, they have a physical connection, a physical sense. One is terumah, which comes from a root meaning that which is raised, and tenufah, which loosely means a wave offering. Again, initially it had to do with, with physical action. In other words, you came up, and you brought something and you did something with it in the presence of God and in the presence of other people. Now, I realize that for a lot of people, a public display having to do with money is distasteful. Uh, it, it, and just to give you a bit of background, how that developed in Yeshua Tzion in the beginning, we, by the way, never passed the plate. That's not part of tradition, and uh, it's not the cultural thing to do. But it's also a faith challenge. Um, I went to a rabbi's conference one time where I was told that the expert state, with a great deal of confidence and, and uh, assurance, that when you pass the plate, you have a 25% greater likelihood of get, getting more shkalim, getting more funds than if you have a box where people actually have to physically get up off their chairs and go and deposit something. And you know, something stirred within me, I guess you call it honoriness, or, or maybe uh, on a better day, an expression of faith, where my attitude was, uh, I really don't want to see people feel like they're being manipulated in order to give. I don't see that the Word of God presents that kind of an image. So we've always had the pushka. And then a number of years later, I went to a fellow uh, Messianic congregation in San Antonio where they had giving as part of worship. And people actually got up and there was music and there was dancing and people went to their pushka and joyously and gave, and, and I was profoundly moved by that, because that to me was the right way to do things. And so we brought it to Yeshua Tzion, and lo and behold, as you would expect, you always have the critics. And one gentleman in particular described the getting up from the seats and going to the pushka as mammon walk. In other words, we're doing this to honor the god of money, mammon, supposedly. And uh, you can either get bent out of shape and try to justify yourself and 
jump on, on the individual for making that kind of statement. Or else you remember one basic fact. And that is, God is the righteous judge. He knows our motives. He knows when our motives are right on the money. He knows when our motives are rotten, as they are sometimes. So the perspective that we came away from in listening to this kind of criticism was twofold. First of all, we are not going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Because there are abuses and excesses, we're not going to throw out what the Word of God lays out as a model and a template for us. We'll talk more about that. Secondly, the, uh, the, the other issue was simply this. If the shoe doesn't fit, don't try to wear it. Do you know what I'm saying? People can look at you and imply and impugn your motives and presume to look into your heart and presume to read what's in your heart. And God alone knows what's in your heart. And you can say, he knows what's in my heart. And I am not trying to do anything for show here. And so those are not the shoes that I'm going to wear. They don't fit me. And so that was our determination. And I believe that as we have tried to honor the Lord, he has honored us. That's what the word of God says. Those who honor him, I will honor. And as I've stated from time to time, God has been good to us. Our bills have been paid. Um, and when we have preached or taught on giving, it has always been as an expression of our worship to God. And so there are times when our worship of God is private, when we sit person to person, us and God, alone and, and pray and read scripture, perhaps sing. That's right and proper. But also we have times that are corporate. When we get gathered together as a mishpacha to celebrate the presence of God, and we express it in a number of different ways, singing, dancing, uh, sharing the word of God, fellowshipping, and giving. Uh, and we make absolutely no apology for the fact that we see giving as a public expression of worship because that's what the word of God says. Now, you may not get that in English, but as you read the text in Hebrew over and over and over and over again, you're brought back to one basic fact. The word heart is mentioned in, in one verse after another. God is saying those who are generous in heart, those who are wise in heart, and by the way, wise in heart is not wise in art, um, but it, it, it is translated skilled, but it really means wise in heart. And so... What is the take-home message in that, in, in that section? It simply is that God is looking for a person's heart when they give. And by the way, what we see here was by no means the extent of the giving that the people of Israel were expected to bring. Earlier, uh, as Michael mentioned, there was the tithing. And so this is like what we find in the rest of Scripture in the New Covenant uh, that speaks only about special 
kinds of uh, free will offerings, uh, but it, 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 it assumes that tithing is already part of it. Again, what we see here really is that God is looking for the heart. God always looks for the heart. And this construction project was, first of all, a, a personal invitation by God. Let me read to you a couple of verses from chapter 25 of Exodus. Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me, from each one of those who, whose heart prompts him to give. Then verse uh, 8 of chapter 25, then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. So what the Lord is saying back here in Exodus 25 is that he is looking to have a greater presence with the people of Israel. Yes, he was in Mount Sinai, but his presence needs to be with the people. And by the way, when you study the orientation of the camp of Israel, you'll see that the tents of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, were positioned right around the tabernacle. The tabernacle was smack dab in the center. What does that say? It says simply that God wanted to be in the center of Israel's life as he wants to be in the center of our life. Not out there in some kind of a corner, but in the center. So this is, first and foremost, a personal invitation by God. And he expected the people to hear and receive it in the spirit it was given. Scripture never, never, never talks about giving that is coerced. That is forced. In fact, when God knows that people give out of rotten motives, he screams in pain. And we have a number of scriptures in the prophets where God looks at the people and says, you're bringing stuff to me that is half-hearted. Keep it. I'm not interested. Would you bring it to your high officials? He always wanted to, to have us bring first fruits, and first fruits means, above all, it means the very best from the top. You don't give God leftovers. But that's something that you do if you understand the love of God and his invitation to want to be part of your life as it was with the nation of Israel. Again, we are repulsed by, by things that have to do with money and public because, you know, we've heard enough stories, or perhaps we've been part of it, you know, where people abuse this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I remember my father-in-law, bless his heart, he was in his 80s, and the Reformed Temple he belonged to sent him letters specifying how much money they expected him to give. And he was living fixed income, and he had to go back and, and argue with them and tell them that, no, he was not capable of giving as much as they were thinking. But that's not the kind of giving I see in Scripture as generous giving, something that is heartfelt. We also see Yeshua's words 
in Matthew chapter 6, that's part of the Sermon on the Mount, where Yeshua says, don't do things for show. And so people misinterpret that to mean that you can't have anything that is a public display of worship, public display of piety. And I, I, I've had some folks come and say to me, you know, uh, Yeshua says, don't do anything publicly. Well, by that definition, we would not sing and dance and do anything here together as a mishpacha, as a congregation. Furthermore, what Yeshua is, is addressing is the hypocrisy of some of the Pharisees who did what they did for show. They wanted everybody to, to, to see, looky, looky here at me. I'm, I'm such a great and zealous, God-fearing individual, and I give this much money, and, and I do all these things. Yeshua condemned that, but he never condemned public display of worship. In fact, the Word of God expects that we would do that, not only here in the Torah and in Exodus, but in other passages throughout Scripture and particularly in the New Covenant, the New Testament, where people are expected to gather, gather together to worship God, as we do. But the emphasis is always on the heart. And the phrase for generous or free will is repeated over and over and over again. You, you know what was what I found incredibly fascinating as I found, as I read and studied this passage, it seemed like God was highlighting things for me. And ever so often I stop and say, oh, okay, I get it. I never did, but I get it now. So here are some things I wanted to share with you. One of the things that really jumped out me was the repetition of the word all or everyone. Did you notice that? Verses 20 to 30 the word all or everyone appears over and over and over and over again. Everyone who is willing and whose heart moved him. 21, 22, all who are willing, men and women alike came and brought gold, etc., etc. If you were to go through that, you will see that it seemed like there was 100% compliance. Now, this was a, a, a Jewish bunch of folks and it is extremely rare. I haven't been around too many occasions where you have Jewish folks where you have 100% of anything. You've heard the, the expression, two Jews and three opinions. You really don't see any dissenting voice. You don't see anybody standing up and saying, you know, I really like uh, my earrings, thank you. And uh, I bargained big time with this, my Egyptian neighbor. And furthermore, I need the earring because I need to look good, because I need to attract the right kind of mate. You don't see any self-interest. It seems that everybody is participating in this process. What you have is 100% collaboration. You don't have the notion of 20% of the people doing 80% of the work, which is unfortunately kind of the standard, you know, people say, ah, in, in this congregation, that congregation, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Uh-uh, it's not what the Word of God says. 80% is not enough. 100% is what God is looking for. And that's what he got. 
And so what is amazing here is that you have people coming and bringing generously. Not just, and, and, I don't know, folks, at least for me, the word free will offering is so vanilla, you know, uh, because I've heard it abused, I suppose, where people were expected to bring a free will offering that really wasn't free will. You know, it's like we lock the door and nobody leaves until we, we have so many people giving so much money. Uh, the Hebrew word for free will has the sense of giving with devotion, giving generously. Again, that is repeated a whole bunch of times here uh, in these verses. If you were to go back and reread it, um, everyone who was willing, verse 21, who was willing and whose heart stirred him or moved him. That's another expression that's used here. Um, Literally meaning whose heart lifted them up. So this is part of a, an overwhelming um, expression on the part of all the people to come. Why? Because they had a basic sense of this is God's house. And we want to make God's house come together and be excellent That was part of the nedava, the Hebrew expression for free will offering. And by the way, the free will offering um, was part of two other offerings that were all part of the so-called peace or fellowship offering. But again, this is something we see here. We also see um, in the rest of Scripture and I'm sure you're all familiar with 2 Corinthians 9-7. I won't ask you if you know it by heart, but you've probably heard it several times, where Paul is saying, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I know you've heard the uh, silliness of uh, people saying God loves a cheerful giver, therefore take the money and laugh as you're depositing it. That really misses the point. Why? Because the earlier part of the verse is where the emphasis is, not on the cheerful. Give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. The Greek word for reluctantly is the word that has to do with emotional or physical pain. In other words, when you give, you should not be because you're conflicted and your kishkas are all tied up in knots. You're, you're in it. And the other word for compulsion is great deal of distress. So Paul's word simply is that we give because we know who God is. And we know that God is a gracious and generous giver. He has given us. He has sustained us. Maybe not in the style that we expect or even demand, but he's taking care of us. Can you say amen to that? And sometimes people take this and, and they twist it. And I don't know what it does for God. It just turns my guts. I remember going to a meeting a couple of years ago where a free will offering was taken 
And it was so distressing for me that I walked out at that point. The manipulation and coercion was such that I felt, I felt like I, I couldn't stomach it. That's not the heart of God, folks. It doesn't reflect who God is. And as I expressed the first week, a couple weeks ago, and as Rabbi David expressed last Shabbat, when we talk about a building campaign, we want something that is done as unto God. In other words, you seek God and you determine what he wants you to give over and above your tithe for the coming year. And then you put it down. And nobody is going to call you and nudge you and pester you about that. Nobody. Uh, the building committee will, will see it once so they can take it to the bank and say, we have this, this type of figures that's possibly available to us. But what you determine to give is like a biblical vow. It's between you and God. It's kadosh. It's holy. Nobody can insert themselves in the midst of that. But you simply need to remember what the Word of God teaches. That as we give, God will give to us. It's not some kind of foolish formula. I give a buck, God gives me two bucks. Yeshua said, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together. Running over, it will be poured into your lap. With the measure you measure, it will be measured unto you. Now, this is not some kind of karma-ish, you know, that if I do good, some kind of a, uh, impersonal force will see to it that, that I get. No, we worship and follow a personal God. And so, as because he knows our hearts, because his cameras pan back and forth, they see everything that's going on as we give out of a generous heart. He will see to it. And as we, in Corinthians 9, 2 Corinthians 9, as we give generously, we'll reap generously. That's, that's what the good book says. Anything less, folks, anything less sticks in God's craw. Because it, it conveys an attitude of the heart that is hard-hearted towards God. Scripture simply says, look, get together with God, determine between you and God, and then give, give joyfully. Regardless of the amount, what comes forth has to come forth willingly and joyfully as an expression of your worship to God, saying, Lord, here it is. Here it is. You've given me, I want to give. Now, the, the other thing, coming back to Exodus 35, the other thing that really grabbed me was the rapid pace of giving that takes place here. You, may, you might not have noticed it, but in, in this section, 30, uh, Exodus 35, 20 to 30, again and again and again and again, we're told they came and they brought, they came, they brought, they came, they brought, they came, they brought, they came, they brought, etc., etc. 
In other words, this was an ongoing, unstoppable movement of the people of Israel coming and bringing what they had to honor God for the construction of his temple, his tabernacle. Now, stop for a minute and think about what the nation of Israel was like, that generation. We're not talking about great spiritual giants. We're talking about folks that a few chapters before, a couple of chapters before, committed the disgusting sin of the golden calf. And as we read the rest of the Torah, the rest of the travels of the nation of Israel, we see again and again that the people demonstrated attitudes that were absolutely rotten. That, that God was tempted again to nuke them. And then other times, Moses said, God, what are you doing to me? Why did you give me these people? You had nothing better to do than, than to say, I, you're going to take these people and lead them. If you really like me, you're going to kill me now. We saw that in Numbers chapter 11. So the history of the nation of Israel in the desert was grim was grim, folks. So here, the, before that and after that, we have all this awful stuff. Then right here in the middle, we have this little oasis. Think about it. You have a little oasis in the 40 years of the generation that left Egypt. Something happens here to spur the people into action like they've never been before. You say, well, okay, that's obviously God. But the fact that you have this overwhelming generosity means that somehow God was at work big time here. And there are hints to that effect that God was working behind the scenes. We see that, for example, in chapter 31, verse 2, before the golden calf, where the Lord says, See, I have chosen Bezalel, literally, I have called by name Bezalel, and have filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, etc. And then in um, chapter 31, verse 6, Moreover, I have appointed Oholiab, called him by name, to help him, and I have given him skill to help him. Then he also talks about the craftsmen, uh, the men and women who, had, who were wise in heart, chacham lev. And the Lord makes the following statement, see, I, no, not somebody else, but I had given these people the skill that they needed. Very, very strong statement where you have two issues. One, you have God selecting beforehand the people who need to participate. In other words, before Moses puts out the word, he, God was already at work back here, selecting the individuals, and already empowered them, gave them the power and the wisdom they needed to do this work. And yes, obviously these guys had skill and experience before, but God did something special and unique here in this situation 
And we see that, by the way, very much in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. In, in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians uh, 12, where we see that God takes people who are already skilled and who already have experience in, in a particular area and then just pours all kinds of extra wonderful power on them and wisdom on them so that they can do the job even better. And that's basically what you have here with Betzalel, who was the, the master craftsman, the head of the construction, and Aholiab, who was the second in command, and then the men who came and, and were skilled in different crafts, and then the women who came were also skilled in different crafts. And you step back and say, wow, God did something real special here. Now, I, I can't speak for anybody else, but there are times when, when I stand in the back and I say, Lord, you're doing some awesome stuff here at Yeshua Tzion. And you may not be able to see it because half our folks are gone today. But let me tell you something. God has been crafting a spiritual building here. He has been drawing individuals who are particularly gifted in different kinds of areas. And he has gifted them additionally. And it is awesome, folks. It is awesome to see, to see the men who, who God has called. Uh, I'm not going to embarrass Lee, but, you know, Lee is obviously one of those. And Dan... Um, both of whom have had all kinds of experience in building acquisition, and then other men who are part of the committee, and there are more, and, and the gals at Yeshua Tzion who are gifted. I, I just stand back and I'm amazed. I'm amazed at, at all the gifting God has brought to us. And it's something that God has done. And... Um, and, and, and he's, it's his work. And so what we are endeavoring to do is simply take one step after another as he shows us and follow the path that he is leading us. So what we ask for next Shabbat, for Shavuot, the Feast of Fruits, besides the vegetables and fruits, we ask that you take some time to seek the Lord and there will be a card in your bulletin where you'll have uh, the place to put your name and the amount that you feel led to put uh, as a faith commitment, whether you call it pledge, whether you call it hoo-ha, whatever you call it, uh, is, is really insignificant. The, the point is, this is a vow that you make to God and you're just letting us see it long enough for us to have some idea that we can take to the bank. And we simply want to say, Lord, what is it that you're going to be doing in this process? What is it that you're going to be doing in this process? In each one of us, how are you going to stretch us by faith? And how are you going to stretch us as a congregational mishpacha? As I've mentioned from time to time, there is no fire under us on one hand, but yes, there is a fire under us. There's no fire under us because 
we're comfortable here. We have a wonderful relationship. We've been blessed at, at Greenwood. But yes, there is a fire under us because we feel God has called us to step out by faith and pursue his call for us to have an equipping center, an expansion of his kingdom, not ours. And so I keep coming back to Exodus here where the Lord says, make me a building and I will dwell among them. I want to put that out for your consideration and simply ask that you, we're going to take a few minutes to, to pray and, and worship. I'm just going to ask you to continue to pray and say, Lord, what part do you have for me in this process? What is it that you want me to do? Besides the shekels, besides the, the amount that you want me to put, whether it's next Shabbat or following Shabbatot, we're not expecting, every, by the way, everybody to fill in something next Shabbat, but as you're led, just say, Lord, I want to serve you. I want to be part of the establishment of your kingdom here, the building of your house for your honor and glory. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you put up with our shenanigans, especially, Lord, our unbelief. Lord, where we justify our inaction and disobedience with all kinds of spiritually sounding language Thank you, Lord, that you know our hearts and uh, that nothing is hidden from you. And, Lord God, we simply pray that you speak to each one of us, give us clarity of what it is that you desire from us. Stir our hearts by your Spirit, Lord God, to respond according to your will. In your time, in your manner, Lord God, that we would come and bring the offering that you have in mind for each of us individually, for us as a congregational mishpacha. And we simply trust you, Father God, that your kingdom would expand and that your house will be built here among us so that you can dwell with us. Thank you, Lord God, for your presence. We simply look forward to a greater measure with expectation of the fullness, a fuller measure of your presence and the activity of your spirit with us. We ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen.